Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you by Reedley College, educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology, efficient production practices, and food safety. Now here's your hosts of Voices of the Valley, Dennis Donahue and Candace Wilson. This is Dennis Donahue from Western Grower Center of Innovation and Technology, and we are back again for another episode of Voices of the Valley. And as always, I see my good friend, uh, Candace Wilson on Zoom. Candace, Hi, how are you today? Good. I think this one is going to be interesting because we have Brent Shedd, who is the chief executive officer of Stout, or if I look at his business card, it says Stout Industrial Technology, so I don't want to shortchange him. But as you heard before we got on the air a little bit, he's a little bit of a renaissance guy, but we want to talk to him about what he's doing, his background in artificial intelligence, and that'll just get things started. Brent, welcome and thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. Well, listen, having accused you of being a Renaissance man and worn a few hats in your career, walk us through uh, your journey to Stout and how you ended up here. Oh, well, I, I don't know if we've got enough time for that journey. Well, you can give us the condensed version. <laughs> yeah, the condensed version. Yeah. So started in strategic management consulting, transitioned into advertising as, you know, strategic management consultants often do. I'm kidding. That's not true. And then, you know, had a good run running ad agencies here in the U.S. until I kind of saw changes happening in the ad space that signaled the demise of large holding company agencies and, and that kind of thing. So took a look at the, you know, the technologies around us. And that's one of the benefits of advertising is you're able to work with a variety of different industries. And so I saw the growth of technology companies, particularly the growth of artificial intelligence coming up. And so I wound up starting a couple of AI companies, the first in the professional services space, and then the second in the fintech space. And those kind of had their pathway. That journey led me into autonomous vehicles. So I joined an autonomous vehicle company in a uh, strategic role and eventually was asked to take over as a CEO. And that company was then you know, acquired by uh, an electric vehicle company. And as that was going down, I was, you know, contacted for the role here at Stout. And so I was very impressed with the board and the team here. Uh, and so I went ahead and made the switch into agriculture last year. Well, I was really intrigued when we first met and we just met a few days ago. You know, we've tried to be in the business, hopefully reasonably successfully. Of, you know, how do we connect ag with technology? But, you know, our lens is from an agricultural lens. And I was really intrigued by your comments and observations that you were interested in creating that bridge, but you looked at it from a technology standpoint and you talk about we, that bridge still really, you know, has yet to be built. So just kind of your observations from the tech side. Particularly in the educational space, right? So colleges have been teaching the principles of agriculture since the 1800s. So they've got their programs down pat, right? Whereas when you look at artificial intelligence, there are still the majority of colleges out there today are still trying to figure out how do we even teach artificial intelligence? I mean, artificial intelligence is a compendium of a variety of different disciplines across machine vision, natural language processing and understanding, robotics, all kinds of different practices, right? And so as the colleges are trying to figure out how do we teach this to our students, no one is really thinking about, okay, but AI is valuable in and of itself, but the real value of AI comes in the application of that 
technology into real world circumstances, whether that's fintech, you know, the finance space, or in, you know, my case in agriculture. And so I often get requests from students trying to understand, you know, we're in the agricultural program of XYZ University. Where do we get the training on machine vision and neural networks and AI models? Like, where do we get that? And, and that bridge doesn't currently exist. And I think it doesn't exist because colleges are playing catch up. AI is growing exponentially, it seems like every day. And, you know, the colleges themselves are trying to sort out their own programs. So unfortunately, I'm afraid the onus of making that bridge exists on or or weighs on the students themselves. They're going to have to reach out and start taking classes in AI and technology themselves because that bridge is not going to be provided to them by most universities today. I'm so intrigued by these conversations around AI. And one of my questions was going to be, what is artificial intelligence? And you spoke specifically, you gave a couple examples, one including like imagery and another around language. I'm curious if there's any other buckets and then also where we are, where the technology is in terms of development. Are there some of these buckets of AI that are further along where we can see the applications and see them bringing value? That's my question. Where are we in the evolution of AI? Wow. (laughs) That is a huge question um, and could take a really long time to answer. I think the easiest way to think about AI is to think of it as a child, right? So if you think about all of the mechanics of a child, that child sees, that child hears, that child learns to speak, that child learns to move, that child learns to understand its environment. It has to learn right from wrong. All of those things are practices within AI, right? So machine vision is how AI under, you know, sees the world. Natural language understanding, natural language processing is how the AI understands what's being spoken and how to respond. That's largely the practice that you see at work in your Alexa or your Siri, right? Convolutional neural networks is how the, the AI thinks about and identifies what it's seeing, you know, in our case, it's identifying that's a weed, that's a lettuce, you know, plant, that's a bug, etc. Right. And then you've got the mechanics of actual, you know, decision making, which falls to the model itself in terms of, you know, what do I do with the information that I'm being given? And what, what am I expected to do? What is my particular purpose in this circumstance? So, you know, again, to take that back to Stout, That's how the AI model then activates the blades on our cultivator to cut the weeds and leave the crops. So it's just a huge space of learning and progress. There's something called the Turing test, which is when you are interacting with an artificial intelligence, but you can't tell that it's an artificial intelligence. You think you're interacting with a human. And mostly that happens through either chatbots or it happens through speech. There's a particular thing that I'm very fond of, and and I have to be very careful here or else Apple's going to trigger my phone. But, you know, when I ask Siri a question, or I just mention, you know, Siri's name, if I don't follow that immediately with a comment, Siri will turn around and say, huh, or yeah, or something that is very, very similar to what a human would normally say, right? Letting you know, you called my name, What, what do you need, right? That's that aspect of humanity that tends to drive toward the Turing test and letting people feel like 
I'm not speaking to a robot. I'm speaking to a human-like entity, right? That's going to understand me and interact with me. So like I said, it's a massive space. There are Facebook, you know, or, or Meta today, as it's known, has put out a, a model that it's, it has invited individuals to uh, go online and interact with this model, ask it questions, rate its responses. So they're kind of crowdsourcing the training of this model, the training of this child, if you will. And that obviously has its positives and negatives. You know, many parents uh, can, can lead to a, uh, a confused or sometimes a, a not a not a super positive outcome. But that's the difference that you know, that artificial intelligence brings to a space like agriculture is that with a, an AI powered implement or vehicle or uh, application of whatever kind, that element will learn as time goes by. So it will only get smarter. It will only get better at what it's doing. And that is a stark contrast to the traditional machinery and applications that we've always had in agriculture that they only degrade, right? It, it might be a brand new implement today. And then three years from now, it doesn't work so good because I've been using it in the field. And so it's old and it gets run down. Whereas with a, what you would call a software defined implement, like what Stout is building, that machine will only get smarter as time goes by because we can increase its capabilities through over-the-air updates, very similar to what you get with a Tesla. Like you buy a Tesla today, your car's only going to be more capable two years from now versus just aging on the spectrum of replacement. More specific to Stout and just understanding the business model and, you know, it's under the subject of just collaboration and partnerships and kind of understanding where the AI meets the hardware. So you talked specifically about the artificial intelligence recognizing that, oh, I see a weed now I need a blade. How are you guys doing the, the Stout provide that full sort of service where you're also developing the machinery or is that through partnership? Where's the handoff? Is uh, there a handoff, I suppose? No, no, it's a, it's a great question. And as is the case with much of the AI space, the decisions you make early, early on either pay off for you handsomely later down the road or, you know, spell ruin for your business. And in the case of Stout, the decision to build both the AI and the hardware, both the software and the hardware in one entity has paid off very, very well for the company. So we build the hardware that runs the software that we also build here in Salinas. Are you able to look down the pipeline with AI and, you know, thinking about the farm of the future, for lack of a better phrase, where's AI able to take us? Oh, that's wow, such a like scary it. question, Dennis. You can't do that. Have you seen Boston Dynamics? Yeah, 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 yeah. But that stuff's not working just yet. No, but that, okay. Let's last break. The question, <laughs> yes, the question is, did, did you see Tesla's AI day? No, I didn't. I haven't seen that. I need to yeah. YouTube. So that is the, not to digress, but the big difference between the Boston Dynamics robot, which we look at and we're like, wow, look at all the stuff that it does. Yes, that's pre-programmed. So it's a very choreographed activity that it's doing, right? And then you see the Tesla AI day where, you know, Elon introduces this rather clumsy moving robot that looks closer to something out of iRobot, still humanoid shape, but definitely not, you know, 
Boston Dynamics went a little bit more, you know, function over form. And, and I feel like Tesla went a little bit closer to the form over function. The difference being that the Tesla robot is nowhere near as capable as the Boston Dynamics robot, but the Tesla robot is being designed for mass production. Whereas the Boston Dynamics robot, those things are, I don't know, a million dollars a piece or whatever, right? So Elon is presenting a humanoid robot with a price point of around $20,000. And the intention of running these things off an assembly line, you know, to produce millions of them. So when we think about, you know, what would that mean? Well, I mean, if you think about Elon's aspirations, right? Why would you send humans to get Mars terraformed and get structures built and get, you know, that entire place up to snuff for humans when you can just send an army of robots to go do that first. And then when the humans arrive, they're basically walking into the Hyatt Regency on Mars, right? I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, lunar mining and all kinds of really incredibly dangerous high stakes missions that could be identified for these humanoid robots that make perfect sense and and that that humans, you know, in their right mind, at least would not want to get anywhere near, but things that could, you know, benefit humanity to a great extent. And then when you bring that back to Earth, you know, you wind up with a robot that can help out with household chores, that can lift heavy objects, that can do all kinds of, you know, manual labor, repetitive stress injury kind of jobs. And, you know, relative to how that plays into the ag space, yeah, we're going to wind up with more robots on the farm that are doing those kinds of jobs, the highly repetitive, you know, there is a mantra in the autonomy space. If it's dirty, dangerous, dull, or difficult, it's a prime candidate for automation. And you're going to see that play out in the agricultural space, in the transportation space, in the industrial space, all over the place. Talk a little bit about, so for instance, you know, you're with Stout, you're in the thinning and weeding game. And I'm, I mean, it's kind of a lame analogy, but I always, when I first envisioned, you know, automated harvest, you know, I thought R2-D2 was going to run around all the fields. And then I realized R2-D2 is a more repetitive function and CP3O is who you need to be thinking about for harvest because there you got to replicate a human being. So based on what you're saying, obviously the ability to do that, AI is going to be right in the thick of things. How long does it take to bring that about? Well, I mean, you know, one of the other things, not to, you know, overly quote Elon or the the Tesla AI day, but, you know, he was asked if you could live in any period in history, when would you want to live? And his answer was today. Today is the most exciting period in history to live. And I think that, you know, when we think about the progress that is being made in certainly in the agricultural space around robotics, automation, artificial intelligence, all those things. This is happening now. This is not a, you know, we'll we'll begin to see these things in 20 years. No, there are machines, there are prototypes in the fields today that are harvesting strawberries. There are, you know, machines in the, in the orchards today that are, that are harvesting apples and pears and that kind of stuff. So I don't think this is a, we're going to start to see proliferation in the future, but the reality is this stuff is happening today in the fields. So anytime, you know, if you're wondering, well, where are these things really going to pop up? They're going to pop up in the labor intensive 
areas within agriculture and within other industries, right? Because there, there are labor shortages of wide variety of, of spaces and agriculture is no different. So the difference is, in my opinion, that the stakes are far higher in agriculture because this is the food that we eat and we don't have the option of not growing the food and not getting the food out of the field, right? So it's critical to the survival of our species that agriculture is successful at finding the solutions to this, the, the labor shortage that we're seeing. I want to go back to stout in particular. So thinning and weeding today, can you talk about the prioritization of your future efforts? So if you look at the evolution and advancements in technology, where do you see stout in the next five years and what sort of new technologies are going to allow you to get there? So it's a great question. We'll, we'll continue to focus on the labor intensive spaces. We'll continue to focus on plant level data. What we're trying to do is put greater control in the hands of the growers, right? By allowing them to manage their yield, not just from the field level, but from the individual plant level. So a lot of that is going to take the form of data, which is a whole other conversation. And, you know, there is going to be a significant ramp up period for growers to understand the amount of data that they're capable of getting from an artificially intelligent machine. And that could be a little robot running through the field, or that could be uh, you know, a smart cultivator, or it could be a drone. It could be any number of different carriers. Think of it, technology carrier, right? You could, you could be a tractor, it could be a combine, any number of things, right? All of those machines, when they are you know, made intelligent, you wind up in a situation where those machines are providing massive amounts of data that have to be processed and have to be you know, rendered useful to the grower. But the question is, when you have such a large amount of data coming in, how do you format that data in a way that is actually useful to your operation? Because you've never had access to that amount or that level of data before. So this is going to be a learning period for everybody involved. I don't think anyone has really cracked that nut yet. There are a number of different companies in the space that are working toward that solution. And the smartest ones are doing so hand in hand with the growers. Stout has an advantage in that perspective because we actually, you know, we were incubated inside of a, a large grower shipper operation. So Stout was literally, you know, you could say born in the field. And so we've got that agricultural perspective that is baked into the DNA of the company. But data is absolutely going to be, you know, the bright spot for, I think, breakthrough insights and progress in the agricultural space going forward. Um, Brent, I don't totally know how to answer the question, but you talked about the how. So you collect all of the data and basically, how do you make that data useful for something to be implemented? It's the actual how that I'm wondering, what do you do? You have the data. Are you writing code to analyze the data? Are you identifying specific data points that will actually influence the outcomes? What do you do there? <laughs> That's a great question. And the answer is quite complex. And so uh, what I can do is answer that at the highest level, which is, you know, the machines that we build have onboard machine vision cameras, right? And those cameras are designed to operate in 
the very challenging environment of agriculture, right? Because fields are dirty, dusty, muddy, all kinds of stuff, right? And so the imagery that comes off of those cameras are very much like you looking out at the world around you. And if you can imagine, you know, if you just wiped everything in your head and you were literally looking at the world around you, it doesn't mean anything, right? I have an image, but I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't have any context. I can't do anything because I don't understand my environment. Those images are taken through what's called a convolutional neural network, which is then identifying the individual elements in the image, right? Like I said, that's a weed and, and exactly what kind of weed that is. That's a plant and exactly what kind of plant that is. That's a bug, that's a rock, that's dirt, that's et cetera, et cetera. That's step one is understanding the environment, right? And then the next step is, what do you do with that information? And that's where the AI model comes in, right? Which is based on the AI model that's now going to issue the actuation commands to the knives or to the sprayer to actually generate an outcome on behalf of the grower. The same kind of process happens with the data where you're now taking that information and now that you've run it through the neural network and you understand what it is, now you can output all kinds of different information streams that can be useful to the grower as long as it's presented in a way that the grower can assimilate into their operations and can use successfully to either limit their inputs or you know decrease their labor or you know optimize their practices on the farm and and you know that's the step that as i mentioned a lot of different organizations are are working on and you know running trials in and everything else including stout itself so Brent, I'm just thinking about all that, and this is one of Candace's other favorite questions. What are the skills that are going to be involved for the farm in the future? And, and you know what you've laid out, how pervasive in terms of folks working on the farm, who's got to know what? Obviously, it might it might be a driver, or but with AI and all these things going on, how does that permeate throughout an entire organization and the field level? No, it's a great question, and I think you know what growers today are seeing are when you get equipment that is coming into the field from a non-agriculturally based company. They've got a technologist there who is training you how to use the equipment. And that technologist is counting on the trainer either being the one who's going to continue to operate that equipment, or they're counting on that trainer to provide a similar level of training down the line to whoever is going to be operating that equipment next. The difference from a an agriculturally based company like Stout is that we realize whoever you originally talked to, that is not the individual who's going to, going to wind up operating that machinery, you know, a week from now and definitely not, you know, a year from now. So you cannot rely on the trainer to train the future operators. You've got to build UX and UI so that the user interface, right, and the user experience to be as intuitive as you can possibly imagine. And it's not like we don't have examples of this. So um, I was just speaking with someone yesterday who brought up the perfect example, right? I, I have an iPhone. Millions of us have iPhones. How many of us have ever read the user manual for the iPhone? I don't even know if there is one. I just turned it on and I went through the little setup and I'm off and running. Equipment has to be the same way. And if it's well thought through and well architected, 
there's no reason why it can't be. So that's the standard by which we should be measuring all of the equipment that goes out into the field, particularly the AI powered equipment, because the equipment itself has the ability to help the user with setup and deployment. You know, kind of looking additionally at your background, obviously artificial intelligence, but you know, you've got a little autonomous vehicle uh, background and then also this unmanned uh, aerial activity. And so, I mean, when you think about all these things, they're all going to have applications on the farm of the future, so to speak, you know, AI, autonomous, unmanned aerial activity. How, when, and where does that all play out? And then on the autonomous piece, as, as you know, that's been kind of challenging from a regulatory standpoint, whether it's auto or agriculture. Part of that is, you know, you can work certain things out in Arizona or other parts of the country, so you don't hold back the technology development. But at some point, you know, if California is a, is a big part of the production piece, you know, what's it going to take to get people comfortable with where we're headed in those areas? Yeah, so a uh, couple of good questions there. I think the answer to your first question around airborne autonomy and terrestrial autonomy, the answer from the grower's perspective is just solve a problem for me, right? So whether that is identifying spots in my field that are getting overwatered or whether that's identifying areas in my field that are being challenged by disease pressure, pest pressure, that kind of stuff. From a grower's perspective, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to a grower that has come to us and said, you know, I love the smart cultivator. I just, I don't even understand how it does such an amazing job in the field. I had it in the field the other day. It was running through a field where the weeds were so prevalent and so tall that I couldn't even see the crop. They literally covered the crop. Cultivator went through it, wiped out all the weeds and left each and every one of the crops. I'm just staggered by that. And I'm on the edge of my seat saying, yeah, you want to understand how it does that? I mean, let's, let's talk. And nope, no, I just, I'm just, I just want to say thank you that it removes all these weeds. And I didn't have to find a, a hoeing crew or, you know, deal with people not showing up for work and, and all this other kind of stuff. I think that's the prevalent grower's mindset is I've got a problem. I need a solution to the problem. And I'm not terribly concerned with the technology behind it, so long as it works. And it makes my life easier and it puts me in better control of my crop and my yield and my costs, et cetera. So when we think about drones, when we think about the terrestrial stuff, it's going to be an integration play. It's going to be focused around use cases that specifically limit inputs that help them stay ahead of regulations. You know, chemicals, they're going away. They're getting regulated out here in this country and pretty much everywhere. So what do you do when you can't use chemicals in your field? You're going to have to default to other methods of selection, whether that is a mechanical actuation or whether that's other planting practices, et cetera. And, you know, we had talked a little bit earlier about what is the possibility for AI. AI's gift to humanity is the ability to ingest vast quantities of information and focus on the output instead of being encumbered by all of the traditional methodology that we as humans deal with each and every day. It's so easy for us to fall into the trap of tradition in every aspect of our lives, but particularly in a space like agriculture that has been doing things the same way for millennia. And AI is not encumbered by that. AI is able to focus on, tell me what the output you want is. I want a, a lettuce head of X amount of size. 
tell me what my variables are. Here's the type of ground that I'm planting it in. Here's my, you know, my climate. I'm going to give you a feed on climate. I'm going to give you a feed on, you know, the environment and the pests and all these other types of things. This is the amount of water that I've got available, et cetera, et cetera. And the AI does the machinations on the back end to turn around and tell us, here's how you should be planting, or maybe you shouldn't be planting lettuce at all. Maybe based on market dynamics and where you are and where you want to sell and when you want to sell, you should be planting sweet potatoes or you should be planting something completely different. That's the value that AI can bring is the ability to look at so many different factors in our environment and look at trend lines and look at projections and everything else and then give us direction that we can choose to follow or not. But the net is if we follow it, it's going to help us completely change our operational costs and the dynamics of agriculture in general. We started this conversation, and I can't remember if it was actually on air or off air, but we talked about universities and being able to teach AI. Is talent going to be a bottleneck that holds back the speed at which we could be moving things forward with AI? And is the industry doing something broadly to address that? Yeah, I mean, so that that ties back to my earlier comment about universities trying to figure out how to stand up an AI program in their institution. You know, does it belong as a standalone effort or do we tie in an AI aspect to all of our traditional, you know, there's econ and then there's AI in econ. And then, you know, we've got, you know, whatever art and here's the AI in art you know, program, right? AI is touching every aspect of our lives. And honestly, sometimes I'm mystified by, of all of the applications for AI, why would we focus on that one first? But, you know, that's humanity, right? So we're constantly coming out with, you know, AI copywriters. Okay. I'm not sure I really follow that one, but, you know, all of the medical aspects of, you know, AI can look at all of these x-rays and identify tumors and things as good or better than the best physicians, aces, like I totally get that. So literally you could put an AI program, an AI, whatever they call it, curriculum in place for every single, you know, major at a university. So you can understand why it's so challenging for the universities to figure out how do we do this? Because there could also be a legitimate curriculum solely around AI itself and all the different components of AI. And then we graduate people with a thorough understanding of artificial intelligence, and then we leave them on their own to figure out, now, what industry do you want to apply that in? The answer to your question, sorry for the long-winded you know, direction to get there, is that there is a dearth of talent in the US, and I think worldwide today, in artificial intelligence that ties back to that. There just aren't that many programs out there. And so every industry, whether it's medical or whether it's finance or, or agriculture, aviation, transportation, they're all fighting for this talent that understands the mechanics of AI, and particularly those that have focused on specific areas of AI. So as Stout, we're not super interested in individuals with a deep NLU, natural language understanding or natural language processing background. We're much more focused on those that have a strong machine vision, a data science, a natural, you know, um, a machine learning kind of background. Those are the areas of AI that are most applicable to what we're doing, to our application. 
But, you know, the NLU and the NLP people, they've got plenty of applications with the metas and the Googles and, and all that world. So the Amazons. So yeah, but the short answer is there isn't enough talent out there with this background. And that's kind of my hope and, and my, my little mission in this space is to try and get the word out to people who are studying particularly agriculture to encourage them to make that bridge in their education and take the courses in the technology side so that they can come out of their diploma with a balanced understanding of how to apply these things in agriculture. And they're going to find that they're not just their job prospects, but their earning prospects are a multiple of what originally had been if they had just come out with a standard, you know, ag diploma. Well, it sounds like we shouldn't let Elon Musk have all the fun with AI days. Maybe ag uh, ought to uh, host a few of those themselves. And I mean, to your point, if it's, look, we just want to solve problems. And if AI can get it done, here are our problems. I mean, this is fascinating. We typically only do podcasts for an hour, but Candace, I think this is this could easily be a series. There's a lot going on here. You know what, Brent? I just I'm gonna invite myself to come ride along with you. Let's go out to lunch. I want to know more and more. <laughs> Brent, Brent, we've been doing this for over a year. She's never wanted to go to lunch with anyone, so she nope. must be fascinated. You you know where to find me. <laughs> and I'm just so curious. You know how many times the thought has gone through my head? I wonder what kind of conversations his family has around the dinner table. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I can tell you that my my kids basically put a a rule in place that whenever we're in the car together, I'm not allowed to identify how autonomous vehicles would solve the current issue that we're facing in the car, whether it's the lunatic that's driving in the passing lane and just is sitting there doing 40 miles an hour being passed on the right by everybody. And I'm like, yeah, in autonomous vehicles, that would never happen. Or whether it's the, you know, the accident or whatever, you know, it's all these circumstances that my kids are like, oh, just stop. I know autonomous vehicles will solve every problem. We just, we don't need to hear it anymore. Stop saying that. So yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a broken record with all this kind of stuff. Well, we appreciate you sharing your album collection with us on uh, AI and uh, other, uh, other related topics. Candace, I think, like we said in the beginning, this one was going to be an interesting one. I think uh, Brent uh, did pretty good. Brent, I so enjoyed the interview and just kind of having a different kind of conversation. So thank you for joining us. Best wishes to Stout, and hopefully we'll see you on the farm soon. Thanks very much. Thanks great for your time, Brent. And good luck with all your efforts. I know you guys are starting to transition down to the desert, so I hope all that goes well, and hopefully we'll see you in the center again soon. Candice, why don't we uh, plan on coming back and do another episode in the near future? Let's do it. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on Voices of the Valley. And as you heard from Candace, we'll be back. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast, brought to you today by Reedley College. To learn more about Reedley College's Agriculture and Natural Resources program and the courses offered in ag technology, food safety, and plant science, you can visit reedleycollege.edu.